Hello, 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 everyone. My name is Alana. Welcome back to the Digital Green Book Podcast. And I have with me today the lovely Sherelle Dorsey. As you know, on Digital Green Book, I love to chat with amazing people inside of the community. I think we have so many champions just out here getting the work done. Uh, Anyone who's in and around tech, VCs, angels, just people out here doing the legwork to really elevate our community. So I'm so honored to have you here today, Sherelle, because I think you're so phenomenal and you do so many positive things for us. Thank you. Thank you so much, Alana. Thank you for having me on the Digital Green Book. I'm really excited for the conversation today. Um, as as you know, but maybe your audience doesn't know, um, I'm the founder of The Plug. Um, we covered Black innovation um, and insights from a data-driven perspective. Um, I recently decided to step away from the plug and start working on some things in the background. But the core of the work that I've done um, in almost the last decade has really been about bringing attention and storylines to what's happening in Black innovation um, across the ecosystem and really creating quantitative um, and deep research. Um, and I still believe in that in that mission of you know data-driven insights that are helping us to understand and to see that genius comes from everywhere and from every place and from anybody. Um, and particularly centering, you know, Black innovators in conversations and embedding them into the narrative that we just traditionally haven't done. You know what the funny thing is? I've been having so many DNI conversations lately unintentionally, and I find that either people are very receptive to it because they do understand the need for diversity, whether that's all the way back from product creation, like, oh, Maybe if I make a pulse oximeter, but I didn't have any people in the room that were melanated, I don't understand that the pulse oximeter can't read. And it seems like we're not doing as well in hospital settings all the way down to, oh, this wasn't thoughtfully designed for a handy, capable person. And now we have to rework our entire model of a building. So some people really do get DNI, but then there's the more subtle, innocuous ways that it creeps in all the way from like VC funding job opportunities and hiring, relationships, friendships. Yeah. What would you say made you go on the journey that you're on now where it seems very DNI focused? Yeah, I I you know, I think that we've been able to couch DNI to address like everything and I think that it's it's not necessarily like this kind of one label that can really be put around what does inclusion actually look like? What does it mean? And I think for me, it's really about how do we define intellectual curiosity and how we build? How do we create a sense of literacy around different cultures, different communities, different issues or experiences that help us to think about and expand our definition of how technology is for the people? And I think that as I've gone through the journey of, of learning how people build and why people build and even confront some of my own biases, um, I also host like the TED Tech podcast. So the infamous like TED Talks, you know, everyone wants to do a TED Talk, the whole like welcome to my TED Talk sort of mantra. I host that podcast. And one of the um, talks I, I had a chance to kind of review and, and do an analysis on um, and I, I do apologize because the the uh, speaker's name is escaping me, but essentially um, he brought up the, the statistic that over 90% of all websites are, are non-ADA compliant. And <clears throat> we don't necessarily build things with other people in mind. And when I was reviewing that talk and doing a lot of writing and in, in, in working with my producers on how we speak about this and then what are some of the things that we can provide to our listeners around how do we make things much more accessible on the internet? Um, it made me really think about how we, you know, we, we can get caught in this loop of DE&I just being this like kumbaya, everybody at the table versus how do we ensure that folks who need access get access and, you know, have a sense of safe space when they are in spaces that are typically not built for them. And what is our duty to ask the big tough questions? Now we can't always solve for everyone at first, Right. And I think we need to understand that there's so many things that like we're creating in the world that are first and, you know, the process of iteration, you know, when we build something, when we launch something, it's going to be sloppy and messy and there's going to have lots of holes in them. 
And that's where the intellectual curiosity around like diversity, around who's not at the table, what's not represented in the data, who's not in the room, who have we not thought about? That's where you really get into the meat and the potatoes of the opportunity, right? To expand, to expand the work and to expand the problem solving and to, you know, to really stretch your brain around, well, how can we keep refining this so that it does, it does work for more people or more systems or more opportunities. Um, and so that's kind of the way that I've been approaching it. You know, I'm not a DNI practitioner by training, um, but I, I think so much about, wow, like I would have never thought about that because that's not been my experience. Um, I, I watch a lot of shows. Like I know, I know like the tech world's like anti-TV, like grind until you die. But like, I like I love TV. I love watching really good scripted shows and I'm watching this show, The Company You Keep. And, you know, just the representation of the niece being deaf and everyone in her life knowing how to sign, just knowing how to say like, hello, and, you know, the effort people make to learn how to communicate with her and to see that on television, it makes you think, wow, in what ways, if I decide to host a conference, am I ensuring that we have an interpreter, you know? Am I ensuring that for myself, I'm even trying to learn a few things around ASL so that if I do encounter someone who, you know, is hard of hearing or needs additional assistance, I can be somewhat fluent in communication or have access to people who, who can support. Um, and so anyway, I just think it gives us this opportunity for intellectual curiosity. It allows us to do more research. It allows us to, to better understand, to speak to people about their experiences. And I think ultimately that makes us not just better technologists and practitioners, but it also makes us better humans overall. That's a good point, Lisa. You say when you in interviews or meetings that you're having with people, you ask the question, what should I be asking that I haven't asked yet? <laughs> and that was super thoughtful when you just said that, Cheryl, because it's like, even for myself, I find myself on a DNI journey now, even though that's I, I hesitate with labels because I don't like to be boxed in or pigeonholed to just like a few metrics and outcomes, especially not how traditionally DNI has been tackled in any of these ecosystems, because it does feel very much like a hashtag or a quote or a metric that they have to hit just to appease stakeholders or uh, get a certain number of things done. But as someone who has a an ADA member in my family, I, you really think about inclusivity from a different lens mm -hmm. because it's not a luxury, it's a necessity. Like, no, they need to be able to get in and out of the bathroom. No, they need to be able to eat unassisted. Like, And in thinking about the word inclusivity, not just with physically um, impaired individuals, but individuals who've had alternative backgrounds historically in this nation, I know we have so much further to go but what are some ways that you think we have made strides, um, be it in a DNI umbrella or not, or, or just be it in an inclusivity bucket? You think we are making progress that people might not be aware of? Like we, we are becoming more thoughtful in ways of being inclusive. Yeah, I think I think that, you know, with more data, with more strong reporting, there's much more awareness. I think that there are definitely some companies that are, you know, doing everything from like the trivial, right? Like maybe they're working with more um, vendors who've historically been excluded from their vendor list. And we're even seeing transitions and changes at places like Target, right? Like Target is working with everyone from like Kalana Barfield to Finoel, and before you only saw like the Jason Wu's and the Isaac Mizrahi's for Target. And you're seeing the HBCU collection roll out. I feel like that's one of the biggest and most prime examples. Um, you look at places like Apple and Google, um, you know, like Google just announced their tech equity fund collective and um, have given over a million dollars away to organizations that are supporting black and brown communities in their pursuit of training up the next generation of software engineers. So I think that there are definitely some sprinkles around the awareness and bigger conversations. Um, we definitely saw the influx of DEI um, professionals being hired at certain organizations. Now, one could argue that we're starting to also see a decline as well. Um, but you're also seeing some companies start to hold true to 
you know, the accelerator programs that they have for black and brown founders, like doubling down on those commitments, um, you know, and, and pouring more money into like funds that are helping to support the fundraising needs of black and brown, um, you know, black and brown founders. So, you know, I think I think we could, you know, probably take a look at the charts and the statistics and definitely see some flaws. But I think that if we lean in and focus on, well, what is working, who is being supported, what platforms do exist, I think the conversations are just out there in the open. And I think that, you know, folks like yourself are holding, you know, people and companies to tasks um, around these issues. And I think that, you know, once you see how corporate America has like responded, um, that becomes just a tremendous, um, such a tremendous trend and opportunity to, um, to do some course correction. So, um, so I, I, I want to keep it on a positive note that like we are seeing some changes and opportunities Um at least the consciousness has definitely increased. And, you know, as you know, we've done, you know, at, at, you know, at the plug formally, you know, we've done just a ton of reports on, you know, the, the, the kind of growth. And, and even now, like my team and I um, in our next venture, you know, are really working with some awesome um, multinational companies, uh, you know, and working on understanding all across industries, how, um, you know, black and Brown, um, innovators are even using things like micro entrepreneurship um, to to create new opportunities and, and income sources in the world. So, you know, it's, it's a question. what is what's micro entrepreneurship. So, micro entrepreneurship is like, listen, you're maybe you're maybe you're working your nine to five and you still have somewhat of a side hustle. Maybe you make candles um, on the side and you sell those from a website, or you make T-shirts. Um, you know, some folks do, uh, what they call, you know, gig economy things. So you are, maybe you're driving for, for Uber or Uber eats or, you know, uh, doing task rabbit opportunities and earning income from the side there. Um, you know, you are still an entrepreneur, even if you're holding down a full-time job and maybe you're only working on it a few hours, but you're using another, you're using the internet, you're using technology to create new income sources for yourself and for your family. Well, that definitely describes the experience of myself and a lot of individuals. And it's, I will say in, in 2023 or just in general, you know, there's always new terminology coming out. So it's like you could fall into a category <laughs> and not even know that you fall there. Intuitively, micro entrepreneurship. That makes sense. Minimal amount of time trying to get your grind on. But let's take a couple steps back because I would like to understand a bit more about you and how you wound up doing the umbrella of things that you do. So yes. what, what made you interested in tech and how did you, how did you get here? Yeah. You know, I always start the story with my grandfather hopped off of a bus in 1953 in Seattle, Washington, and he started working at Boeing as an aircraft technician. And, you know, that journey, um, you know, being a black man in the South who, who moved from Alabama to Detroit, there were opportunities there, obviously, um, and, and when he came back from the Korean war, you know, did a trade, went into a trade program. And once he finished, he, he got hired, um, and, and, you know, left, left home and, um, and, and that paved the way for, you know, him, you know, getting on his feet and really being able to create opportunities for myself and my cousin by buying us our first computers in the nineties, you know, buying us CD ROMs, you know, my mom, like, being adamant about having a second phone line so that we could use the internet, you know, she had to dial up back then. Um, and, and so, uh, and so when I think about the, the, the access that I had at that age, it really, it really just sparked my interest in technology. And I grew up in Seattle, Washington. And yes, there are black people in Seattle, Washington. <laughs> and, and so I, I grew up in Seattle and, um, you know, the proximity to the Microsofts, the Amazons of the world, um, technology was just sort of embedded in our culture in the city. And um, I had the fortunate opportunity to attend the Technology Access Foundation, which was started mm -hmm. by a black woman, software engineer, who turned a storefront in the hood um, into a, a computer programming training center. And there is where I got to learn programming languages, building of websites, you know, terminology, interviewing skills. And then I worked at Microsoft. So, you know, my story is not super atypical, um, but yeah, I mean, being able to work at Microsoft as, you know, 14 year old throughout, you know, until I graduated from high school was such a privilege. And I, it was more privileged to have a 
bevy of mentors and bosses and leaders um, of all backgrounds, um, you know, all backgrounds, racial, you know, you know, ethnic and, you know, even, um, you know, sexual identity and, and, and gender identity um, who just really poured into me and, and seeing that I think uh, continue to, to allow me to know that I can create something from nothing and I can be a part of, you know, meaningful work that allows me to engage my mind. And so, um, you know, I've worked for the Ubers of the world, the Google, the Google fibers of the world. Um, you know, I was creating businesses and, and online sort of uh, businesses and communities and in college. And that's how I paid my rent in New York City, which was really expensive. <laughs> and um, and then I think all the dots for me just connected. You know, you start mm -hmm. to see who you are across your life. And, um, you know, for me, the narratives that black and brown folks were not in STEM or in tech and every comparison was like, oh, you got to be the next Mark Zuckerberg or the next Steve Jobs. And it's like, well, I don't look like any of those people. I don't have the same background. I didn't have the same opportunities and not from a, a victim mentality, but more of, you know, what if it was Aisha Evans? What if it was Jewel Burke Solomon who sold her company to Amazon? That's who I want my nieces to know. That's who I want on their, the posters I want on their, on their bedroom walls. And so, you know, in launching the plug and even just covering stories for like Fast Company and The Root and Black Enterprise, like, it was really just out of, you know, as I spoke to you earlier, intellectual curiosity. You know, what are Black and brown folks doing in these spaces that are just really dope projects? Um, and how do we get inspired by those things? Because I get inspired by being around other inspiring people and people who are just like tinkering and changing the world. And, you know, it's like, I'm, I'm not, I, I don't care so much about like celebrity fodder. Like, you know, I want to learn about like that weirdo that's in his garage, you know, making making something to like pull plastic out of the ocean. Like that to me is so fascinating. Um, and, and I wanted to see that from a lens of communities that like were like what I came from, you know, black and brown folks who, who, who poured into me and who really set the tone in our communities that allowed us to know that we could be what we wanted to be. And so that that's really like, for me, technology just happens to be the medium. But for me, it was always about like, you know, the fact that, you know, I came from a community of innovators and um, as Jerry Dorsey's granddaughter, you know, he just helped me to realize that, you know, I can, I can do whatever it is that, you know, I put my mind to. I think that is so beautiful. And I really feel that way about representation. One of the, the hills that I'm willing to die on is that representation matters. Even if we look at it from a scientific lens, like, there's something in your brain called the RAS, the reticular activating system. Um, basically, whatever you feed into your senses is what you're primed to see. Um, yeah. They call it like the lime green pants phenomenon. Like you buy yourself some lime green pants and now you go outside and you feel like everyone's wearing them when really they were, it was the same statistical amount of people wearing them. It's just you're now aware of it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So thinking about that and highlighting more individuals who may be reflective of ourselves inside of the tech space. That's why I personally spend so much time going to things like a Black Tech Week or going to Afrotech or going to a mix of events that may be more catered to um, our community. But then I also spend a great deal of time going to things that are not catered to our community because I believe I should be that diversity in the room as well. When it comes to people inside of tech, you dropped a couple of phenomenal names there, but do you feel like you have any particular inspirations inside of not just the tech space or the innovation space, but the intellectual curiosity space as far as women who, women or well, in anybody who inspires you? Like, yeah, I want to, that's my target. Like, yeah, absolutely. Um, Trish Malines Zico um, has been a longtime mentor. She's the the creator of the Technology Access Foundation, which is the programming school I came out of in, in high school. And um, for over 30 years, I mean, she's been leading in this work and really trying to support families and communities to um, have access to STEM education and uh, has done just phenomenal work in building up STEM leaders. Um, you know, I, I think a lot even about... Um, 
um, Dr. Desmond Patton. Uh, I believe he's at Princeton now. Uh, he's a professor at Princeton, but he was formerly at Columbia. And, you know, he had this whole program with youth. They called it the Project Safe Lab. And it really helps like disadvantaged, at risk, you know, all those words, um, <laughs> youth to kind of define for themselves, like how they wanted technology to support them. And I just thought it was phenomenal work of like, you know, a trained social worker to be working with youth and also major tech companies to really kind of like redefine, like, how do we build tech? Um, you know, I, I think those kind of people on a higher level, um, for sure. But I also feel like I'm really inspired by, you know, content creators and people who are really, really great at sharing important information um, through the mediums that we have. You know, I, I think about Aisha Selden, you know, who is a, a licensed broker um, who has taught financial literacy on so many different levels. Um, I really get inspired by Nathan Barry, who shares updates on his net worth and how he and his family think about money and how they think about like retiring their parents so that they could have just more time with their parents. And mm -hmm. I really get inspired by people who are really thoughtful about how they show up in the world and the lives that they live. And, you know, it's not absent of like, yes, get, you know, make money, like get smart about how you make money so that you can, you know, do the things you want to do in the world. Um, but I think I think anyone who's like writing or sharing or leading and, you know, centering community and family, I think that those people really inspire me. And, I, and, and if you would have asked me that same question, honestly, Alana, like 10 years ago, I probably would have told you like Elon Musk and, you know, and and all of these kind of folks who, you know, are the are the faces of like these major things. And mm -hmm. I, I think that there's a lot of great work that's been done by you know, folks who've been able to build multi-billion dollar companies. But I think there's also a lot of great work that's been done by people who've just been able to hire people, just being able to give people an opportunity. You know, if it's felt, it's felt good that like, hey, at one point, you know, I had five full-time employees and that's small potatoes, like, right? Like compared to, you know, a major multinational, but it's like, yo, I really like paid a salary and healthcare benefits to five people. Let's go you know, and spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on freelance journalists and researchers, particularly those of color or those of, you know, different backgrounds. Um, and, and that makes me feel really good about the fact that I created something from nothing and was able to play a very small role in someone else's wealth journey. It's not small potatoes because <laughs> entrepreneurship is truly one of the hardest journeys that someone can go on, not for the, of course they don't help, not for the systemic things in place that could make it slightly different depending on your background, but because of the mindset that is required. Um, being, becoming an entrepreneur, like legacy, I did nursing for 13 years inside of a hospital system, and transitioning into entrepreneurship required a complete paradigm shift. Instead of clocking in for someone, you're now clocking in for yourself. So on days that you might not feel the best, on days that like there is no compromising. You wouldn't compromise for your boss because you know you have to be there. So you have to be there for yourself. And to get to the point where you're now responsible for more than just yourself, you're responsible for five other individuals making sure that they eat. That's not small potatoes. <laughs> it's not small potatoes. What would you say now being on your entrepreneurship journey this long? What's something that you feel like individuals may not consider embarking on this journey that they really have to fortify in themselves if they want to have longevity inside of this space. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I think you, you need to know, like you got, it's, it's such a deeply, as you mentioned, such a deeply profound and shaping journey because you're faced every day with, can I do this? Why would I do this? Why would anybody want to do this? <laughs> you know, <laughs> Because it is tough, especially on days where you can have like one day, it is the best day of your life. You closed all the contracts. You had great customer reviews. Um, you had amazing meetings. And the next day, everything could be broken. You know, you're, you know, you, you just found out next quarter's money is not going to look what it's supposed to look like. Um, and that really can take its toll on you mentally and emotionally. And 
Yet, I think what you gain from betting on yourself is something mm-hmm. someone can never take away from you, right? It's whether you decide to, you know, go back into a traditional work environment, at least you were able to kind of have that aspect of your life that you can point to because you know how to lead a team now, you know how to hire, you know how to raise capital, you stood in the face of rejection after rejection, and you were still able to find ways to bring money into your company. Um, you you face your limiting money beliefs, right? You go from, oh, I, first I was being offered $5,000 checks, now I'm offered $25,000 checks, and now I'm at six-figure checks and above. Um, and at some point, I'm going to get to a million dollars. You're always challenging yourself, and you know, and always having to face yourself because you know you you it is just you. You have to go hunt and kill every single day. And I think doing that as a woman and as a black woman can also look very different. And I have had to also be unapologetic about taking time for myself. Um, even just having a conversation with one of my team members today that, hey, you know, here are the things that's happening in my personal health life. And here's where these next couple of weeks might be a bit of a challenge. But I want to let you know that, you know, I am 100% committed to what we're building. And, you know, it, it teaches that level of transparency. Um, and it, it toughens your skin a little bit. And I think as, as, as women and as Black women who also show up in spaces where a lot of times um, there's not as much consideration for our unique journeys. Um, It gives you additional confidence that I belong in this room, right? Like I belong in this room, even though traditionally you haven't seen someone that looks like me. And by the way, not only do I belong in this room, but there are other people who belong in this room that I'm also going to make sure that you know their names and you're going to know my community names and you're going to know where I came from. And you're not just going to ask me about what it's like to be black in spaces, but you're going to ask me about what I'm building and why I'm super brilliant about what I'm building and how this is going to work and completely change the world. And so, you know, there's days of confidence and then there's days of doubt. And when you are able to push through that doubt, when you're able to really look at what your needs are, who you are, what you want to build, what your values are. You can also say, I don't have to do it like everyone else. I don't have to go to all the tech conferences. Maybe I don't have all the pedigree, the degrees, the Y Combinator. Maybe I didn't do, you know, I didn't, I didn't sit on similar stages. I did it in my own way. Um, it, it, maybe my mantra isn't move fast and break things. Maybe it is being meaningful and, and, and intentional. Maybe it's, maybe it's building for people who've never been considered, you know, maybe it is. <laughs> Maybe it is, you know, I'm, I'm building my, my, my company around my life because I want to be accessible to my family and to my kids. You know, maybe it is, hey, I need to really brush up on my financial literacy because, you know, if this doesn't come together, I can't start from scratch in terms of building my retirement fund. So I need to make sure that any new opportunities I charge my worth because I'm investing back into the health and the welfare of my family. And so I think there's just a lot of, of things that you address and you see yourself kind of face to face with what you're building. Um, and, and it becomes much bigger than just you showing up and clicking a bunch of buttons every day. It, it, it is it is all about like how those buttons you're clicking impact your team, your community, your clients, your customers, all of those kinds of things. Girl, you're about to make me pass a collection plate to the <laughs> the, the funny thing about it is when I when I interview people and we just have free form conversation about their lives, about their interests and things, it usually shapes up to the topic at hand. And the topic today is about that tokenization. And I feel like as a black woman, whether we want to sign up to that role or not, we get thrown into the DNI bucket. And that's why that that part of the conversation came up. And then putting that to the side and finding your own sea legs and breaking out of that. Like, no, I want to show up in other ways. And then there's days I'm showing up without any of that in mind, because I'm just trying to navigate through this space for myself, trying to figure it out from day to day. I don't want to have to think about a whole bucket of other things that I'm checking boxes and ticking boxes for. And then you have the weight of your ancestors on you. Then you have the weight of whoever you're serving on you as well. And then that leads up to 10 million things exploded in my mind with what you you just said, because it's like, okay, 
what is the original purpose that I came here for? I know for myself, personally, my mission before I transition from this plane is to create pathways. I want to be able to identify problems that hinder people that look anything remotely similar to me and decrease the burden of effort that it takes to be able to have an organic, genuine experience inside of these spaces. Like entrepreneurship is hard enough for anyone, but we know that there's a few extra roadblocks that may present themselves um, depending on the vessel that you show up in. Recently, I was chatting with a few young ladies. I like to host activations, different events uh, to expose people to tech. And even recently at another event that I went to, the same metric came up that in, in their youth, around middle school to high school, all the way to college, up to adulthood, women express a great interest in tech. We've seen an uptick and how many women are actually going for STEM degrees now, even inside of our community, we're outpacing men two to one in like graduating with STEM degrees and going for the job uh, and even getting hired, despite the pay gap that is still there. That's a whole nother conversation for another day. But what they're even seeing with these metrics, while it may be upwards of 75% of girls that expressed interest in breaking into anything approaching tech, STEM, STEAM, only 0.4 actually converting over into these roles. And I've sort of tried to take the last year to really examine around that stat, like how could a breakdown that hard happen? How could we go from an interest level so high? Because I, we have a high level of attention to detail, young ladies. We have the, the mental fortitude to sit and chomp through curriculum. We have the fortitude to start businesses. like even some entrepreneurship stats, like we women, black women start more businesses than almost any other demographic, right, just right. from our, you know? So when I was looking at that breakdown of, okay, the drive is there, the interest is there. How do we arrive to less than 1% of us actually stepping into this space? And the most recent conversations I've been having with my peers are that some of them we're at that interesting age now where you may or may not be having children and you may or may not be taking care of your parents and opportunities may present themselves and you can't even capitalize or take advantage on the opportunities because you are being self-sacrificial and attending to other responsibilities in your life. It is often not to say that all genders, all sexualities don't sacrifice for their families, but it is almost culturally or socially expected that when it comes to child care or child rearing or labor, um, domestic labor, anything of that sort, we, and this is across every country, first world, second world, third world continent, we usually put our own self-interest to the side for the sake of family, which in some contexts could be considered noble, but I've been, that's a personal thing I've been grappling with lately. Like, what is nobility if, if, <laughs> If I can't pursue my dreams, if these young ladies where three out of four of them want to enter into these spaces and then it's like crumbs of how many actually go in. So my question to you in stating that that very long soliloquy that I just did. Yeah. Have you personally had to grapple with that reality of the, the sort of the self-sacrificial nature? Despite all that you've achieved, do you feel like different pieces of your journey thus far may have looked different if you had gone for certain things or certain types of education or credentials, or do you feel as though that's not something that you personally had to experience? I think these are big existential questions because I think that we I, I, I think that we pose so much of this as like an opportunity cost. And I think that the, the challenge with that is sometimes, you know, everyone's circumstances are unique. Folks' are, folks's, uh, cultures are unique. Some people value family and community, right? You know, from like my friends who are stay-at-home moms and wives, you know, for them, their greatest accomplishments is investing in and pouring into their family. And that may look very different for myself and other friends and colleagues, right? In terms of what we believe are like reaching our, our fullest capacity through the work that we do in the world. 
I don't think any of those answers are wrong. I think the other thing that we come to the table with is our own unique background and economic situations. As you know, the you talked about the ancestors earlier, and it's like, yeah, the ancestors don't play around, right? And and you you think about the the fact of the matter is like I'm I am I am you know a whatever X generation of people who are enslaved in this country, you know. And so when I think of you know the people that I come from who built America, you know, I I am I'm American. I'm a, I'm a Black American, and so I take to heart my opportunities because it is significant and important for me to build wealth and opportunity um, as a result of the challenges that each generation has had to face um, from racial violence and discrimination to redlining to all of these kinds of things. And I try to make decisions based on data um, around how to mitigate some things. You can't, of course, outrun or outwork you know, discrimination and economic robbery that has been um, centuries long. Um, but when we even look at folks who do migrate to this country and the way in which parents are like, you got to be a lawyer, a doctor, an engineer, or an accountant. You have four options. And as tough as that may seem, you also see in other cultures by that next generation, everyone is out of poverty. And it's a lot of responsibility, but it sets us up for success. And so I don't, I don't have any right answers there, but I think so much about people choosing pathways according to their circumstances, according to their talents and what opportunities are afforded. You know, I went to an Ivy League university. I was the first in my family to go to an Ivy League university. And I also have paid for that. I pay for that in student loans, right? So in some instances, yes, I created a pathway for, you know, my legacy to be realized at those universities because I was able to open that door but I think about, you know, my mom's generation, they came out of poverty. They were the first to go to college. They went to state schools, but they went to college. They graduated debt free. They purchased homes. They invest in their families. So I think so much about how our goal and our job a lot of times, at least for me, is to do, do better or to, to leverage what I was given that was passed down to me and leverage that in service of myself and my my family as well as my community to the best to the best extent possible. And when I think about young girls who start off in their interest in technology things like that there's so many factors. I think the Kpor Center does a great deal of work on researching um, the leaky pipelines, right? What happens when you don't have access to to great schools? So you don't have AP classes in the sciences or the mathematics, you know, where's your interest going to be fostered so that by the time you do get to, to a place where you can choose a major, well, maybe you're going to go for psychology, which is still important, but we also know that unless you have a ton of schooling, it's going to take a while for your salary to be, you know, where you would need it to be to completely transform your financial future. And so I think that that's also why, you know, when I look at the content creators who are sharing with young folks about getting government certifications, um, you know, how to structure your money, um, how to negotiate stock options, all of this is information that we did not have access to before. You right. know, I wrote a book called Upper Hand, The Future of Work for the Rest of Us. And I talked about my journey, like leaving tens of thousands of dollars on the table because I didn't know how to negotiate. I didn't know what RSUs were. I didn't know what blackout periods were. And I didn't have people in my life that spoke about that regularly growing up. And so, you know, I, I think, and, and this is my soliloquy that's coming down as well, but, you know, I think that there's so many variables. And I think the, the biggest thing, it goes back to that intellectual curiosity that intellectual curiosity allows us to ask questions like this. It allows us to sit in, you know, salon, like, right? Like they did like in the in the early 1900s, you know, you sit in your salon. And I think that that's what we're doing on social media. We're saloning a little bit more because that's how we're sharing information. And then you can take that information and apply it to your own strategy. 
right? So maybe you do have your side hustle as a micro entrepreneur and you're working full time and you're leveraging those dollars in that network full time to create new opportunities. And then maybe you're, you know, you're taking certifications um, in order to continue to learn and to grow. And maybe you are helping um, fund some scholarship programs or what have you of organizations that are teaching young women more STEM opportunities. Maybe it's investing in Black Girls Code or Girls Who Code or In Tech Girls Camp and making sure these young ladies are matched with mentors. Or maybe you yourself, and that's the other thing too, is that we've we've gotten so so into influencing people virtually. The reality is sometimes it's it's going out of your front door and going to a school and saying, hey, I want to volunteer, you know, to teach X, Y, and Z, or I want to join the reading program because literacy, basic reading literacy is a challenge in this, in this country. And no one's going to help solve these problems unless like we, we take up that mantle and decide to walk that out in our communities. And so when I, when I think about, well, this isn't like some big, you know, wizard of Oz, you know, with this mighty, like, you know, spectrum that can solve these problems. It literally is us. It's literally us saying, Hey, okay, if I am in a school district where the literacy rate is very well below it should be, what can I do? Maybe I get with some friends and we decide to, you know, to, to write a check, or maybe we decide to volunteer once a month or um, create a book drive so that kids can have their first chapter books. Um, and especially books that are that, that with people on the cover that look like them, them, particularly in their communities. So I, I, I think that sometimes like, we get so distracted by the big sweeping changes that we don't look at the micro, right? Like the micro strategic plan of our lives, of our families and of, and of our communities, right? It's just like planning for kids. Kids are expensive. It costs $300,000 to raise a kid in this country. So, well, maybe, you know, as we're planning our lives and we're thinking about, okay, education, financial stability, well, now maybe, you know, when those things are, are factors, maybe then we can, we can, you know, find strong partnerships, strong communities, and then decide, okay, we're going to have a kid and this is what this is going to look like. Um, some of that is, is, is a lot of like, how do we have those conversations out loud? And I know we're in cancel culture, so there can be a lot of opinions that get critiqued, um, but also recognize people get to decide what they want to do, but how do we just expand the thinking models and create spaces for intellectual curiosity and say, oh, this is how, Alana, this is how you like to make your breakfast? Oh, that's, I never tried that before. Maybe I'll, I'll try it and see if I like it. And if I do, maybe I'll, you know, I'll do it again. Or that's gross to me, but I'm glad you like it, you know, and I'm gonna keep doing what I'm doing over here. You know, I just think that there has to be room and space for that. Girl, literally just recently, so I moonlight as a debater um, elsewhere. One of my friends is a lawyer, so he always hosts mock debates for his little oh, class. Wow. Amazing. And we literally just talked about that same stat. I know that Brookings stat you're talking about. From zero to 18, it costs 308000 some odd dollars. So about twenty k a year just to have the bare minimums to raise a child. So yeah, I mean, even that when we're talking about financial literacy, it's not just balancing a checkbook or structuring a legal entity like an LLC. It's like, okay, uh, this extracurricular physical activity you engage in might cost you a $300,000 bill. Are you ready to really talk about that? I love the extracurricular. Um, that is great. <laughs> and, and even that, you're so right about the volunteering. Um, uh, an event that we had at FMU two weeks ago, we were able to host a hackathon um, for some high school, college, and older individuals. And it was amazing. Of all the projects created, there were eight viable teams in this hackathon. Um, shout out to Sydney Davis and Nick's Code. Thank you again, again, again. I will say thank you to the mountaintops for you, young lady. Come on, young black woman with your trademark. Um, <laughs> and those children made amazing things. We were able to give out $4,000, thank you, Microsoft, to the students, um, and mentorship. So shout out to each of the speakers who spoke, offered up mentorship, ongoing mentorship to those students for roles inside of tech. Um, humongous thank you to Whitney Lubin, Haitians in Tech. Oh my goodness. Just There's so many people wanting to do things and give back in that way, and we just haven't created the vehicles, so to speak. So hosting these events or even making um, 
community spaces where it's like, hey, I'm a mentor. Do you need mentation? <laughs> mentation. Mentoring. <laughs> mentation. I like mentation. I have a feeling that we need to be using the word mentation. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but I, I love that. And I am also always looking for efficient ways that I can mentor as well, because it, it is a time requirement and in your entrepreneurship journey, time is luxury, but if it's important to you, you make time for things that are important. So absolutely. Shout out to Lisa. She says she just bought your book. Yes, ma'am. Thank you so much, Lisa. <laughs> I'm definitely going to pick it up again because even in the space of this conversation, that's why I love having these conversations publicly. I tell my audience frequently, I don't know everything. I just happen to know some really dope people. So I'm having conversations that I otherwise would have been having on the phone off screen, but just in front of people, because I'm sure I don't know. There's somebody else out there who may not know. So you just drop some words that I definitely have to go look up. I'm not, I don't even know when RSU is. I'm still learning. So I'm definitely going to go get your book. First yes, off. Yes. Yes. Please. And there's um, so much that we just all have to share. That's what community is for, right? We learn in community and that it's a safe space. Like we're not, we're, we are not born with every, you know, with every piece of knowledge, you know, that's why we have resources. And like you said, you don't know everything you surround yourself with people. And I'm like that too. I surround myself with people who are different from me, who know more than I do, who are going to recommend books, even down to like playlists, you know, like just even down to playlists. So, you know, so I, I, um, I, I, I really love that. Like that's part of the ethos and way you, in the way you live your life. Absolutely. Well, as we wind down here, I sort of want to get into a future outlook journey. Um, as we know, there's no one right one way to do any of this. Uh, but for people watching who may really resonate with your journey or they're looking for ideas of things to do, what do you see yourself doing in this space, I know you're in the middle of restructuring your personal work journey right now, but as it pertains to work-life balance, even in family, um, self-care, and somehow balancing all that you do on a work front, it do you have different thoughts about that now as opposed to, say, five or ten years ago? Yeah, I, um, I, I just I make more time for it. I don't feel guilty. I used to feel really, really guilty about not working to myself to the bone because that was the hustle culture that I was taught. And I went to school in New York city. So it was like that amplified. Right. And so now I'm recognizing that my productivity is tied to my rest and my personal, emotional, spiritual health. Um, it is, you know, having more, making more time for my family, spending time with my grandparents, um, you know, doing the little things, like even just going to my friend's place to like, watch her cat when she's out of town, you know, things like that, I realize are so critical to the downtime. Sometimes we need to breathe, to reflect, to start again, especially, you know, um, especially when we are building great things and we're in a lot of spaces that take a lot of our energy um, mm. to keep pouring back into ourselves. I think, especially as women, especially as black women, especially during like some of the hardest times in our lives. And, you know, I think when we think about the realities of police brutality and, um, you know, just even, just even watching, <laughs> watching the news, um, or reading the statistics about our, our kids and like the lack of opportunity and, Sometimes you you see discussions that are just really harmful and really div dividing, and mm -hmm. those can be very heavy. And so I think our ability to, at least for me, my ability to like de delete my social apps from my phone once or twice a week, just so I can focus and be present, um, dive into a book, eat good food, you know, go to the gym, which I've been trying to do more regularly. Um, learn about my body, doing blood work. I'm sure you could appreciate this as, as a former nurse, like just learning about what, what is, what energizes my, my body? How do I take better care of myself? So that way for the things that I can prevent from a sickness standpoint, you know, cause, cause grinding all the time working, whether you're an entrepreneur or not, like it's not healthy, right? Um, right. Working on our interpersonal communication skills, you know, with our, with our loved ones, with our, with our, you know, um, significant others, the things that will really define having a, a loving and a peaceful life um, and continuously being curious about how do I make this even better? And 
even when I'm doing really hard things and really hard work, how do I make this a better experience for myself and for everyone around me? And how do I approach my life with love and kindness and a sense of, of worth, um, you know, from a leadership standpoint, but also just for, for yourself, um, even when the rejection comes, even when you don't know what the next moves are, um, and even as you're reinventing yourself. And so um, I, I explore a lot of that too through, um, I, I have a new podcast that's called The Road to Reinvention, and I, I get to speak so much with entrepreneurs about this. Um, about this very same topic because it is a journey, but that pouring back into yourself, I think is key to the satisfaction and to the, the opportunity to sit and think and be still and to know, um, you know, where you need to apply your purpose. Absolutely. And where can we follow this podcast? Where are you? Uh... Yes. Wherever you listen to podcasts, it's called the road to reinvention and also on YouTube um, road to reinvention. Absolutely. I'm going to let me go sign up for that right now. Yeah, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. But no, this has been phenomenal. I think having these conversations, I know they're therapeutic to me. This is just me uh, having therapy online for free. Um, <laughs> and it it's important that we have conversations, not just about how to achieve the financial success that whatever we deem success in our head, but also talking about those things about tokenization, imposter syndrome, God, that could be another whole four hour conversation, uh, showing up for oneself and then disconnecting when it's expected that you feel like that need to hug, hustle and grind and just be present 25, eight. Like, <laughs> so right. I'm grateful for your time today, Sherelle. I really, really am. Thank you. Thank you for the discussion and um, for the, the space that you hold for so many of us and the work that you do. And I'm just grateful to be be here. Thank you so much. So y'all follow Sherelle on everything. This will be available on YouTube and it'll be available on my LinkedIn and in a few weeks on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Sherelle. I, I'm following your journey. I love every single thing that you're doing. I really do think that you show up authentically as yourself everywhere. And I'm running to you in these tech streets out here. Yes, absolutely. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you everyone for joining as well. Have a great day. There we 